Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, the writer and documentary filmmaker Lori Gwen Shapiro. Her latest book is titled The Stowaway, One Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica, published by Simon & Schuster in 2018. I asked Lori how she came to write this story, set in the Lower East Side of New York where she grew up, which was a departure from her earlier work as a novelist. Well, I think what happened is I had two concurrent careers as a writer as well as a documentary filmmaker. And I had early success with both of them. But as a novelist, originally, I wrote a book called The Unexpected Salami, which was a wacky rock novel. It was being made into a film for many years, which never manifested, but I got that option check. And then I was young, and I made the mistake of being a little bit funny, which doesn't sound very funny to say. But they said, oh, there's this book called Bridget Jones' Diary that's doing great. And I got sort of pushed into chiclet. And it's a ghetto of some sorts, but it's not where I want it to be. It's not what I was reading. At the same time, I was doing big story-driven documentaries um, about a man who disappeared in the Amazon and lived with a tribe of cannibals, you know, about a man who went to school with Martin Scorsese and never finished his film, and they were the two stars of their film. I mean, so not the social justice documentary that might spring to mind, but a character-driven kind of film that gets people to go out into the theaters. And I really started to get pushed back into writing what was now women's fiction, even though my first book had been reviewed in the New York Times by Anthony Bourdain before he was Anthony Bourdain. (laughs) And I got in a great review. And I just thought, how do I get out? How do I get out of here? And, you know, when you start in a genre, it's very difficult to escape. But I had the brainstorm that I wanted to write a documentary in a book, a big character-driven documentary. But now I had to find the story. So what I needed to do also was work on craft because I hadn't really been a journalist. I'd been a novelist. I'd been a documentary journalist, but that's not the same Mm -hmm. as writing a nonfiction story. And who am I to say I can write a book? So what I, I mean, I wrote novels, but I know how to finish a book. So I started to work on my craft and I switched agents to someone who really believed in my vision. So she signed me up without a book, which is unusual because she knew how determined I was to get where I wanted to go without the idea. And so she, we made a plan that I would write three big character-driven articles that would show that I could get the story, that I could deliver in time frame, that I had narrative technique. And an article is a lot easier to attack. But I wasn't looking at those articles as my income. I was looking at them as something I could attach to my book proposal, that I had the chops. And that's a very different type of way to look at journalism. Most people say, well, that's the end. My end game was always a big nonfiction book. I wrote down my dream blurbs, which included David Gran, which included Susan Orlean, which included Mark Kolansky. And I have to tell you, all of those blurbs are on my book now. And it was me visualizing what I could be and not my current agent at that time. It was the one, you know, 
And when I felt locked in, it was when I knew I had to switch to someone who could be on the same wavelength. So now I decided that the area that I know the best is the Lower East Side, which is rich with stories. My family's lived there a hundred years. My high school English teacher happened to be Frank McCourt. And I've made two documentaries about him as well as a producer, not as a director. And I, so I have his voice in my head all the time. I had five classes with him. He wrote my college recommendation. He was my first mentor. And he always said, when you're stuck, when you're looking for something, start local. You know the stories better than you think you know them. And so I just thought, well, I'll start writing about the Lower East Side and I'll be open to the big story. And I went to write a short piece for the the New York Times had a blog. So it wasn't really the New York Times, but you got NewYorkTimes.com on your, <laughs> which is not the worst thing in the world to get. It's like 200 bucks for an article. But uh, it was an East Village blog. In the East Village is a 1960s term, real estate term. And I started to write about the history of St. Stanislaus Church. This is a secular Jew writing about this, but it was a fascinating history that didn't require a book, but it was the oldest Polish Catholic church in New York. It was founded because of prejudice towards Poles. It had a crazy history of people visiting. And I took the 200-word assignment, and I started to research it, my first stop was the New York Times archives, which is always probably the easiest for anyone. And I found one little article was about over 500 uh, kids marching from Tompkins Square to City Hall t- to greet the Polish stowaway kid. And I had a frisson. I-, I just said, what is this? But I couldn't find a lot of stories about this stowaway. And the way I got to book stage is a very fascinating story. I started to act like a documentary Mm -hmm. director. I was like, what would I do if I was directing this as a film? I would try to find a descendant. Finding a descendant is going to open up more of a a life so it's not just this caricature. Otherwise, you don't have a book. If you don't have access, you don't have a book. And I started to make a chart of all the people with the name Goronsky. He actually had different spellings, Karonsky, Gov. I mean, like, nobody can handle Polish Catholic long names in the 1920s. And I was right. I found a lot more, but it still wasn't enough. And I would call people up and I would say, hi, are you possibly descended from a kid who swam across the Hudson River and was a stowaway to Antarctica? You know, click. (laughs) That's like, (laughs) and I'm calling mostly New Yorkers. And on the 16th call, I got a lady and I, I just thought, oh, this is all wrong because she had a Polish accent and, and my stowaway was born in New York and this is not going to be a descendant. And then she had the name Goronsky, so I did due diligence and I said my whole story and she said, that was my husband. And I actually knew it that second I had a book, but I had to, she said, if you can get to Maine, I have everything. And she had been his second wife, which is why she was still alive, the love of his life, and she had kept all the articles, all the scrapbooks that his mother had. We had his high school yearbook. I had an embarrassment of riches. and But that still wasn't enough to write the biography. And most people don't understand that, that one person or one mother load of information isn't enough to make it work. Well, my New Year's resolution in January 2013 was to write a nonfiction book that would get him in the tent. I think I wrote down, in the tent. <laughs> and I started to write articles I stumbled upon the, the stowaway piece um, connected to St. Stanislaus Church in March. I was in 
Maine within the week. And Which is where the widow, widow was. The widow was in Cape Elizabeth. And within six weeks, I had a book deal. I mean, I just went, I, I just had enough for a proposal. But part of my vision for writing this book was that I'm not an expert on Antarctica. I mean, I needed to actually become an expert of some sort. I know I'm a great researcher because I've made films. I mean, that that didn't scare me. What scared me was who was I to talk about Shackleton territory? This is like the guys club, you know, and I'm doing laundry with my 16 year old screaming at me in the other room. (laughs) And I just thought, how am I going to face that down? The doubt that I could tell a story. And I realized I needed to go in his footsteps and go to Antarctica. So when I was doing meetings, there were six publishers who were interested I was really looking for an editor that didn't see this as a cute book. Some people sort of say, oh, what an adorable story. There's a stowaway, you know, like, and that's not really where I wanted to go. I wanted it to be a big book. This is American history. This is the youngest member of the first Antarctica expedition. How is that not big history? Just because I'm, you know, a mom coming in, you show me your stowaway, you know. <laughs> but I walked into the room at Simon Schuster and the editor that I was meeting with had pictures of, of, of ships and whales and Shackleton on his shelf. And I just thought, this is going to be my man. And when I told him that I wanted to go to Antarctica, his eyes lit up instead of shaking his head at me. He ended up leaving Simon & Schuster, and I ended up having a terrific editor who replaced him. But that was how I sold it, because he saw it as a big history. And also, it's not just the story of the stowaway and the expedition, but This happened in 1928, and the period of the expedition is 1928 to 1930. So it's really the changing of America from Jazz Age era to when they come back, who cares about Antarctica? We just got to get some, you know, work. And so that was a, a backstory of this whole book. But if I had tried to write a story of the first Antarctica expedition, that's an overwhelming tasks that would take at least 10 years of research. I mean, I know happen to know someone who wrote a story of the expedition that was a very nice academic book, but it did take him 10 years of research and was written in 1991. So he didn't even have the internet as a resource. This was a manageable project. I had a character, I had a story, it was a greater story behind it. But Billy, the stowaway is the star of the show. And, you know, I did work on it for quite a some time, but it was, it actually, a lot of it fell in place, but I worked on it for three years, which I think is not bad. No. Not bad at all. But I knew that I had a great story. And that's what it always starts with. I think a lot of people that I've come across fall in love with their project and they don't stop for a minute and think, is this a great story? And sometimes this little stories that I love I could I could read 500 pages on but no one else can (laughs) and sometimes you think okay if I have to write this let me make this an article right and get it out of your system if you have to I mean there's many websites that will publish something in a week if you need to really you know but for me um I really never got bored with this and I always knew from the very beginning it's a great story and I picked a story that I would have picked if I was a documentary maker. But by writing it as a book, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the sexism in the film industry and the fight, you know, oh, you owe money. I've done films that have sold very well, IFC films or HBO films. And at the end of the day, when you pay out everybody on a documentary, you got no money left. And I didn't, 
I want money. I'm not shy about saying that. I have I have a child that's got to go to college. I have a a 98 year old father that's moved in. You know, I don't want someone else taking care of my dad on his last years. I want to be in the house with him. I don't want to be in an office. And writing a big story driven narrative allowed for a larger advance. Talk about middle aged women writing. It's one place actually where we're good because women buy most of the books. Middle-aged women apparently write Yes, books. but they don't get the advances, and there's a way around it. This is my workaround, and I've given this advice to a few women, and I'm pleased to report that they've all had huge deals in the last year. So this, if anyone's listening who's a middle-aged mom <laughs> and or not a mom and just feels invisible sometimes, even if there's a lot of women in the publishing industry, there is a reward for men in fiction and nonfiction on what stories are bought, what what advances are given. How do you get around that? One of the things you can do is get that wow story. You know, you can do a biography of some obscure person that you think needs to be brought back into the fold, but don't expect to get that trade sale. I'm talking, this is advice going to people who want that big trade book, which is a very different thing than an academic scholarly book, which I do not sneeze at, but that's not what I'm writing. So the way to do it is to think like a documentary maker, right? So what's the first thing if you're a television producer or a documentary maker, you lock down the access. If there's a descendant, if there's someone who's the keeper of the story, you make sure that you have that access and that relationship before you send the proposal out, okay? Also, think about it. Is this a wow story? If it's not a wow story to you, it's probably not going to be a wow story to everyone else. But you tell me that there was the youngest member of the first Antarctica expedition was a kid who jumped in the Hudson River, from the Lower East Side is not already like, and then what, you know, you're already asking, and then what happened? That's a story. So picking the story becomes important. Now, there is a lot of interest in women's stories and diversity now, but don't discount misogyny that's not just coming from men, but from women. The women love to get the guys on the cover. And, you know, you really have to think about what is making me exclusive. If you have exclusive story, your power rises and you watch the, the, the advances rise and can be as high, if not higher than many male advances. But I do think that there is an inherent prejudice towards women that are older. And, you know, you can pretend it doesn't, it isn't, doesn't exist, but that's not doing yourself any favors. But if you go into this arena knowing that and think, okay, I'm going to get a story that nobody can say no to. And another great thing is I'm not up against an academic on the story of Billy the Stowaway. There's no one researching this guy. Who am I to tell a story? Well, I'm the only one that found the story. And I found a widow. Top that. (laughs) I mean, that's how you have to pitch it. With a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of humility, but mostly a little bit of arrogance. Because that's how a male pitches. (laughs) So great. Writing these uh, end notes, fact-checked books I love is it. not easy. You love it. Okay, good. It's sort of like I found my happy place. I, I know exactly what I want to do with the rest of my life. 
I wrote down 10 story ideas and now I'm picking one and I'm working on, I can't tell you what it is yet, but I'm working on it with Simon Schuster. I'm staying in New York. I'm following Frank McCourt's advice to start local. And I found another great story that originates in the Lower East Side, but this time it's in the 1960s. So I'm not tied as a a non-academic, I'm not tied to a certain era, but I am following my original mentor's advice to write what you know and stay local. And now, here's Lori Gwen Shapiro reading from The Stowaway, One Man's Extraordinary Adventures to Antarctica. As he took his first strokes through the murky, reeking Hudson River, Billy feared the whipping winds. He kept count, feeling a growing ease in the choppy water, even though he wasn't going as fast as he thought. Keep going, he told himself. It was less than a mile to the ship. So long ago, on outdoor swims with the Polish Falcons, he had mastered the right way to breathe. Later, a streetwise immigrant's kid, he jumped off the East River Pier at roped-off swimming area called Central Lanes, where even as a nine-year-old, he faced a harsher current than here. Billy was a veteran of hundreds of river swims. As he told it later, the only thing on his mind was his one shot to get before Commander Byrd and appeal to his mercy. Bird likes stowaways. All the 17-year-old could do was aim for the flagship and hope for the best. As he approached the city of New York, there was enough light to spot a hauser hanging down to the brackish water. Despite numb fatigue, Billy found the strength to pull himself up and then keep his footing on the slippery deck that smelled of salt. Covered in river scum, hair hanging down his forehead like oily kelp, he found his way to the hole, clambering on hands and knees, inching crabwise over rough-hewn wooden boards, and picking his way past intriguing crates of explorer supplies to find the out-of-view spot he settled on during his mission nine days before. Billy removed his squelchy, wet graduation suit, rolled the jacket and pants out of view, and stripped his underwear. Secreted in the pitch black of the smaller of the two forecastles he selected when the ship was open to visitors, Billy retold himself there had to be a job on the ship for a determined kid like him with water-clogged ears. Did he think of his mother so fiercely protective of her only child, a woman who had never thought him capable of betraying her this way? There was no official rule book for stowaways. He had read about the hoopla planned for the send-off on the morning. The brass bands and relatives and big wigs invited on deck to say goodbye before the New York loosened her moorings and the city's official welcoming tugboat brought well-wishers back to shore. Rumor had it that Amelia Earhart, the new queen of the air, would loop the loop over the Hudson, the grand finale to send the ship on its way. Earhart was a great friend of Commander Byrd and unbeknownst to the public, the new mistress of his very married publisher. She had promoted the expedition as a personal favor. Finally, snatches of sleep until something creaked. A rat, scary shadows flickered across the walls. What happened next felt like a hallucination. Just a few feet away from him on the dark second deck, Billy could see a a kid around his age, equally shocked to have company. The puny boy whispered his name, Jack. 
Jack was a happy-go-lucky 16-year-old Jewish kid who had dropped out of school. Before this caper, Manhattan was the farthest he'd ever traveled from the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, where he'd been born. Jack told his unexpected competitor that he had arrived at the city of New York at 7 o'clock in the morning an hour before. Well, determined Billy, then he was here first, hours ago. This was his spot. Billy tried to discourage Jack tried to discourage Billy, insisting that it wouldn't pay for him to make this two-year trip without any of the thought he himself had put in. Why, Jack had even brought a suitcase stuffed with warm clothes for once they neared Antarctica. He'd come aboard with extra clean underwear and a $100 bill pinned inside a coat pocket. Billy was no dupe. Is that so, he shot back. If this was going to be such a rotten trip, why didn't Jack get off the boat? The boys argued for nearly an hour, cramped in their almost adjacent shelves, first in whispers and then louder and louder. But then, to their joint amazement, yet a noise, another voice piped up, keep quiet, they'll find all of us. <laughs> Could there really be three stowaways? <laughs> yes, the voice told them for over two days. It was a deeper voice, manlier, belonging to one Bob Lanier, a black youth of 20. Even knowing where to look, Billy and Jack could only see his feet. That was an excerpt from The Stowaway, One Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica, read by author Lori Gwen Shapiro on May 18, 2018, during BIO's annual conference. Earlier, you heard my conversation with Lori Gwen Shapiro, recorded on May 19, 2018, at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day.